0: What a joy it is to be with you guys on this Christmas Eve. Um, If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We're going to pick up there again. Uh, We will be finishing chapter 20, looking at verses 29 through 34 today. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 825. Before we get there, and I know we have several guests with us this morning, um, I also know that we've had a lot of families join in with the church. Uh, A lot of individuals join in with the church over the last couple of years. But if you can remember, three years and five months ago, our brother Ben Watson began this sermon series on the book of Matthew. The title of that message was The Son of David. And it fits our passage today. If you can recall, we were led... To understand that this gospel account of Matthew, like the other three that come after it, is a biography that is meant to give an account of important moments of the life of Jesus. It doesn't include every word that he spoke. It doesn't include every moment of him sitting down or standing up. But what it does give account for are the important and the highlighted moments from Matthew's perspective with the purpose of communicating a certain objective to a specific audience. Alright, are you all tracking there? Alright, a certain objective to a specific audience. And that audience, if you can recall, is a Jewish audience. They were familiar with the Scriptures. The Jews would have been very familiar with the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, where through the prophet Nathan The Lord tells David that he will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. They were also familiar with other scriptures that further confirm this prophecy, like in Psalm 132, where it says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So, then when Matthew starts off this biography with a genealogy that a lot of us tend to just gloss over, right? He's also using that to make a point to the Jews. He's pointing out that this is truly the Messiah prophesied and here's the exact lineage to prove it to you. I say this to you this morning before our text... Uh, before we read our text, just to remind you once again of the background of this account of Jesus, because it plays a vital role in our text. In this passage, Jesus appropriately concludes his pre Jerusalem ministry with another miraculous healing. Let's read God's word together, picking up in verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, this isn't the first time in Matthew's gospel that we have seen Jesus heal two blind men. He also did it back in chapter 9, in verses 27 through 31. But this instance today, it's not just repeating that same healing. Though they look similar, it's not the same, okay? There are two different accounts that Matthew is sharing, and each has a unique purpose. Back in Matthew 9, he is establishing and guiding us to this understanding that Jesus has authority over all things, right? He displays and shows us Jesus' authority over sickness, demons, creation, Death, the list goes on. That was then, but now things have shifted because here in our situation today, it's different. Jesus has already shown his authority and people clearly know who he is. So now we find him on this path from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, a quick sidebar for just a moment, okay? If we read the parallel account of Luke... In chapter 18, we might be a little bit confused as to why Luke would say that Jesus was drawing near to Jericho, whereas Matthew is saying he was leaving Jericho. And Mark says the same, that he was leaving Jericho. So which is it? Was he entering Jericho or was he leaving Jericho? It's a little bit of a stumper. But there's a lot of potential explanations, but none of which is absolutely certain However, one such explanation that I find to be plausible for us is that uh, that there are actually potentially two geographical locations of the city of Jericho. The first one being the old town of Jericho on the hill that was mostly in ruins. And then there was also a newer one that was roughly a mile away towards Jerusalem that was established by Herod. This would mean that Mark... And Matthew may have referred to the Old Town, again, trying to aid their Jewish audience by recalling the Jericho of the Old Testament, whereas Luke referred to the newer one. Again, it's not anything conclusive. But the point being is that there are ways of addressing passages that seem to contradict one another. Like I said, there are other ways that people try to reconcile these accounts. But as Christians who seek after truth we would do well to not ignore these challenging questions. Though there isn't always exhaustive knowledge of how everything pieces together, the things that God has revealed to us are sufficient enough to trust in Him. Now, back to our text. In this chapter, Jesus is putting a bow on His teaching of the disciples in front of mass crowds. And He's nearing the end of his earthly ministry. He's about to go into Jerusalem where he will soon be arrested, tried, and killed by the Jews. And the context surrounding the circumstances of the blind men in our passage today is totally different from that instance back in chapter 9. People know who Jesus is now. Many have already heard of and witnessed his power. And they expect now for Jesus to walk in and overthrow Rome. So the passage sets up perfectly the great letdown of everyone's expectations as Jesus shows us this seemingly upside-down kingdom of His. And I'd like to break this down by looking at three main characters today. We're going to look at the crowd, we're going to look at the blind men, and we're going to look at Jesus. So first, let's address the crowd for a moment. On the road between cities, it was not uncommon for traffic to increase as many were trying to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. The way Matthew describes this event lends towards there being an even bigger crowd because many are tagging along with Jesus. And it was common, right, as you travel to see the blind on the side of the road in between towns and for them to Uh, request and cry out for help as people go by. This would have been nothing new. So most people on a journey as such, they would, um, uh, so as most people, excuse me, so as most people on a journey like this, passing by uh, begging blind men, they would have either given something to the blind men, or more likely, they probably would have just ignored them. But in this instance, the crowd rebukes, and they demand for these blind men to be silent. It would seem that this crowd surrounding Jesus thinks that they have a reason to do so. They believe they're on a mission with the Messiah to go and overthrow Rome so that they can once again become a great nation. There's a popular phrase that says, The eyes are useless when the mind is blind. And that expression is used commonly as a way of expressing that someone is unable to think clearly or logically about something, even when all the facts and when all the logic are displayed in front of them. Perhaps we can alter the words of that phrase to fit our text this morning. Maybe something more like, the eyes are useless when the heart is blind. This is the same condition that Jesus has been addressing for the last couple of chapters. A heart that is blinded, a heart that is misguided to the true purpose of Jesus' kingdom. You see, back in chapter 18, the disciples asked Jesus about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus tells them plainly that in order to even enter the kingdom, you must first humble yourself to becoming like a child. One chapter later, Jesus has to patiently reinforce that again. He has to reinforce that understanding and correct the disciples after they rebuked the crowd to try and keep the children away from Him, saying, but Jesus said, Let the children come to Me, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying that the kingdom of heaven is reserved only for those 12 and under, right? But rather, the kingdom of heaven is reserved for those who are last, who are lowly, who are meek, Like children. And these disciples, they're clearly blinded by their desire to be great. Last week, Henry spoke about the disciples' blindness again when the sons of Zebedee requested to be at the left and right hand of Christ. The other ten were upset about that and they became indignant. Why? Well, because they all thought they were better than the other. They thought they deserved a crown. But Jesus, the one who would wear the crown of thorns, again reminds them that whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many." But here in this text, the crowd of people following after Jesus, what do they do? They rebuke the blind men. And much like they did it, much like the disciples rebuked the crowd of chapter 19, as they believed that Jesus really had more important matters to attend to. The crowd believed that it was beneath the dignity of Jesus for him to stop and deal with the outcasts of society. He was on mission, Right? He was on mission to walk into Jerusalem, overthrow the Romans, and take his place as king of the Jews. This was, after all, the son of David prophesied. He need not be disturbed with such lowly requests. This crowd was blinded by the fact that they did not truly understand the mission of Jesus. This same crowd, this same crowd that attempts to protect Jesus, by rebuking the blind men, would inevitably be the same ones to yell, let him be crucified, seven chapters later. Matthew's narrative is meant to help the Jews understand Jesus, not only as the Messiah prophesied, but to also show them the inward blindness of their own hearts in understanding Christ's kingdom. This kingdom wasn't meant to only save them from the tyranny of an evil nation and make them great again. But it was something greater. It was for something even greater. It was a kingdom meant to save them from the grasp of sin and death and give them eternal life. We'll talk more on that soon. But as we turn our attention now from the crowd to the blind men, there's two things that we should note. First, We should note that Luke and Mark's Gospels point out that there was just one blind beggar. Here we go again, right? Another contradiction. Not really, though. There's there's possible understandings of this that we can look at. You see, Mark tells us that his name was Bartimaeus. So, why would Matthew list two beggars in this parallel account? Well, if we consider the audience once again, one possible reason for Matthew listing two is to give additional credibility to what happened. It's not that Mark and Luke um, are saying that there was only one there, but Matthew is possibly trying to give additional credibility by listing the others that were there. We've seen Matthew do this before with the exorcism of two demons back in Matthew 8.28. There he listed two men, whereas, again, Mark and Luke only listed one. Mark and Luke focused primarily on a singular individual, one that they were probably more familiar with. But what Matthew seems to be doing is potentially appealing to the Jewish audience, and according to such Jewish law, two witnesses were needed to provide a valid account. There are other possible explanations, but I think this seems to be one of the more plausible ones. Second thing we should note, It's important to understand the condition that these blind men were in. Because I think when we grasp and we understand their condition, it makes their cries for mercy all the sweeter. Praise God that we live in a time and in a place where the blind have dignity. They are dignified and they are cared for. There are services set up for them. There's ways that they can read. We care for them. But as I stated earlier, it wasn't uncommon then to see the blind left on the outskirts of the city, along with the other outcasts, along with the other untouchables. They would set themselves up on the sides of the road, seeking generosity from any and all who would give it to them often their blindness was due to some sort of infection or disease that left them with red, swollen, and very unsightly eyes. And while we don't know if that was the case for these particular men, it is important to understand that that's the context that they were in frequently. What we can certainly conclude is that these men were in dire need, with little to no hope. And given these circumstances, Their reaction to hearing about Christ walking by them is really nothing short of astounding. They cry out, Lord have mercy on us, son of David. Let's pause there. That's a loaded statement. Lord have mercy on us, son of David. They aren't simply appealing to Jesus for mercy. They're not just doing that. We do that among our, amongst ourselves all the time, right? If I, if I owe you a debt and I come to you and appeal that you'd have mercy on me and allow me more time to pay it back, um, that, that's a normal thing. We do that with banks. We do that amongst each other all the time, asking for mercy. But here, this is different. They ask for mercy, but they take it a step further. They call him son of David. Now they're getting somewhere. By saying such things, they're admitting that they believe in Jesus, not just as some prophet, but as the one whom God had promised to be the only author of salvation. They're rebuked after they say that. They're rebuked by the crowd. And at this point, to keep crying out would only expose them to further hatred of all who are around but they persist even more fervently. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Just think about that. Just think about that for a moment. It would not have been easy to speak up even more. They've been looked down upon, cast away, ignored, mistreated, yelled at for what could have been all of their life. They must truly have thought that this moment was different. So they kept calling out. And their perseverance is a great mark of faith that they've placed in Christ. That faith is displayed even more when Christ asks them what they'd like for Him to do for them. Their response? It's not something small that any person could give. Right? They had received food before, probably. They had probably received some sort of clothing or blankets They've asked for that. And if they truly thought that Jesus was the Messiah and that he could do anything, then their circumstances might have tempted them to ask for something outlandish, like eternal power or riches, to be made great. But they didn't ask for that either. What did they ask for? All they asked was to be made whole, to be given their sight to be made complete with their vision restored to them. Lord, let our eyes be opened. They were in great need of the grace of God. They clearly saw their desperate condition for what it was and gazed instead upon the Son of David to make them whole again. It's an accurate picture of the desperate condition we are in before God apart from His grace. But the last three words of this chapter really make a difference to the story. And followed Him. Now that these men were no longer blind, now that they are complete, they are no longer relegated to sitting on the mats on the side of the road. They now have a full life to live. They can do anything that they want. They can go make a name for themselves. Maybe try and start their own business or even start a family of their own. Their options at that moment suddenly became limitless. What do they choose? They choose to enter into the crowd that just rebuked them in order to follow their Savior. Speaking of the Savior, there's Jesus in this all, right? He's at the middle of it all, swarmed by tons of people journeying alongside him to Jerusalem. This is a long and a dangerous and tiresome road that is roughly 18 miles uphill from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, I'm not sure about you. I would just want to put my head down and truck along, right? You don't want to be in the car with me on a family road trip. Kids don't get to go to the bathroom in my car. It's just part of it. I'm not very pleasant when traveling. So we aren't really sure, though, how long Jesus had been traveling. But it seems he's either just beginning his travels, or maybe he's in the middle of a physically exhausting trip. Yet, Jesus stops against the crowd's wishes, I'd imagine. And that's important to note here, is that he stops it's not a small deal for him to do that. Remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to die for the sins of all mankind. But he stops. To give attention to two lowly, outcast, persistent, begging blind men that hundreds or even thousands before had already passed by. He stops His journey and takes a moment with these men. What do you want me to do for you, he asks. It's an interesting question, right? Because he already knows these men want him to heal them, and his question actually suggests that he can help. Because it's totally different. When he says this, it's totally different from how Moses or Elijah or Peter or Paul talk. They say that they can heal because of God's will and power. But Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He can help these men directly. Because he has that power and he has that authority. And he can heal according to his will. They just have to ask. Lord, let our eyes be opened. And with this request of great faith, Jesus acted. He didn't act because of the annoying persistence of these men, but because he had great compassion for them, because he had pity on them. Jesus felt the sorrow of these men. And when the request was made for them to be made complete, Jesus acted immediately by touching their eyes and restoring Their sight. Folks, we need to understand something. Jesus did not come into the world to simply deal with the symptoms of mankind's alienation from God. Okay? He didn't come merely to cleanse them from their guilt, He didn't come to be on hand to answer their prayers for help in times of difficulty. He came to make people complete. As God intended them to be when He first created them before sin tore us apart. He came to reconcile us to God. That is the only way we are made complete. It is when we are brought back together with our Creator. What a great mercy from the Lord that He would reach into our darkness... And give us light. You've heard us say it a hundred times already, but this kingdom of Christ is upside down. It's backwards. It's counterintuitive to what we think should happen. Or at least it might seem that way to you and I. But really, what has happened in reality is that our sin has blinded us. It's distorted, it has blurred our vision so much that we can't tell what's up or down, left or right, right or wrong. Brothers and sisters, we must recognize our own spiritual blindness. The blind men of our story correctly understood their condition. Their life at times probably seemed dark and purposeless. Their condition was the worst of experiences. They knew they had nothing, and they probably felt like they were nothing. They truly felt like the last ones that Jesus mentioned in the previous chapter. Yet, into their darkness, a great light came, and their faith was rewarded with new sight we would do well to understand our condition as well. We, too, have been lost and blinded by our sin. Jesus once said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What he's explaining here is that the spiritually blind means not recognizing him, for who he is and not realizing our deep need for him. Spiritually blindness, spiritual blindness means failing to understand that we need saving and that only he can rescue us from our sins. When people walk away from him thinking they're okay without him and assuming others might need him more, they reveal their spiritual blindness. People also reveal their spiritual blindness when they don't truly understand the economics of the kingdom. The Jewish crowd was anticipating their own restoration to greatness. Their sight was on themselves to finish the journey and be restored to a great nation. Now, have you ever seen a horse with those blinders on? Right? That's what's going on here, okay? That's what's going on here. The blinders on horses are used usually to prevent them from becoming easily startled or distracted by movement in their peripheral vision. It leaves them without part of their vision so that they can focus on only what's ahead. That's the crowd in this scenario. They have no peripheral vision at all. This crowd could not see the bigger picture ...of Christ's kingdom because of the blinders that they have on. They had no time for anything or anyone else... ...to distract them from reaching their goal to become great again. But as we've seen time and time again... ...greatness in the kingdom isn't found through external profiles... ...such as status, wealth, power. It's found through servanthood. This final part of chapter 20 ends the teaching on this lesson perfectly... Because Jesus is once again putting into practice and exemplifying what he's been teaching about regarding the priorities of the kingdom. Unlike the crowd, the blind men rightly understood who Jesus was. When the news of Jesus' approaching had reached them, they saw him for who he really was and they understood the kingdom better than the crowd, even without their physical sight. I can only imagine how long these two men had prayed and hoped to be brought out of their situation. Perhaps they even knew what the prophets said in Isaiah 35.5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Or perhaps they were thinking of Isaiah 42 verses 6 and 7, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you, as, cov- as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of uh, those who sit in darkness. Or maybe they recalled the psalmist in 146, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. They were just waiting for the Messiah to come. And when He did, they spoke loud and they spoke clear that they knew who He was. He was indeed the one whom the prophet Nathan spoke of in 2 Samuel 7. The son of David, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the prince of peace, in the anticipation of that caused them to cry out without ceasing for their Savior. And today, today, we are doing the same. We are doing the same as we look upon and remember the birth of Christ. You see, this King, this Lord, this Prince, this Savior came to us in the most humble of ways. In the midst of great darkness, the brightest light emerged for all of us to see. He exemplified the priorities of the kingdom, even in his birth. He came not as a superhero, not as a knight in shining armor, but as a lowly baby only to give up his life. That's how we're reconciled with God. Only through the life Service and sacrifice of Jesus are we made complete. That's what this Advent season is for. Remembering the arrival of our Savior who has come. Not to make us great, but to save us from the grasp of sin and hell. And to make us complete by restoring us to the Father. May God grant us spiritual sight to understand the depths of that so that we too can walk in his footsteps of service until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we thank you today for this word that you've given. And together we celebrate the day that Christ was born to die. And through that death, we now have the ability to come to you and ask for our blindness to be taken away. May we be made complete, and may we see clearly the purpose of your kingdom. Holy Spirit, shift our priorities and help us to focus more on Christ's kingdom and less on our own desires each and every day. Amen. Amen.